All right, morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to continue our time of worship as we study God's Word. So open your Bible, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 7. And I hope all of you, uh, whether you've been tracking just for the past couple of weeks or all the way through this study in Esther, I hope you've been encouraged by our time here in this Old Testament blockbuster, amazing story, laden with satire, laden with irony and surprising reversals. And we're going to see another big one right here in our text here this morning. And uh, our, our approach is going to be a little bit different than is customary. And that is what I like to do normally is to read the entire passage at the top and then unpack it. But what I want us to do this morning is we're gonna, un, we're gonna read and unpack the text along the way. So we'll read it in three bites because we've got, probably no surprise, three points. Um, so anyway, that's where we're gonna go in this morning. But let me just, before we get into that, let me just say, uh, by way of introduction, to introduce us to the categories that we're talking about here in Esther chapter seven, because Esther seven, um, it's, a, it's a justice passage. And I think sometimes Christians don't know what to do with justice passages, right? The Bible, if you think about it and you read through the whole thing, you take it in, the Bible is full of stories where God's people are doing two things, waiting and crying out for justice. They're waiting for rescue, they're crying out for rescue, and the form of that rescue that they're often crying out for is justice. I mean, you just read through the Psalms, how often is the psalmist saying, God, how much longer is it gonna be? Before you rescue me from my oppressors, from these evildoers, the, the wicked, they plot evil things against us, and here we are, your people, we're just getting picked off one after another. How much longer will it be? How long, O oh Lord? It's just repeated pattern throughout the entire book of Psalms. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. You get all the way into the New Testament, the very last book of the Bible, and you hear the martyrs crying out in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10, and they're saying to God, how long, how long before you avenge our blood? on the earth, how long before judgment falls on those who are oppressing and shedding blood on the earth? And God doesn't rebuke them for saying that. You know, Romans chapter 12, where God says to his church, hey, leave vengeance to me. Do not avenge yourselves. He doesn't say for vengeance is wrong. He says do not avenge yourselves for vengeance is mine. Justice. It's a justice text. This text is a justice text. I think sometimes, you know, the cries of the psalmist for God's justice, we don't really know what to do with that. We kind of, if we overheard, so we're eavesdropping on the prayer life of a believer, and if we heard a believer praying that way for justice against the wicked and so forth, we might say, you know, it sounds unhealthy. You know, you need to check your heart. Um, whereas the Bible doesn't make us, as we read through, it doesn't make us embarrassed of the justice of God, as if the Bible doesn't create this expectation that when God comes and rescue, it's gonna be a great day for everybody. <laughs> no, it's precisely not gonna be a great day for some bodies, right? So Proverbs chapter 21, I'm gonna put this on the screen for us. When justice is done, it has a twofold effect, right? When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. And that's kind of what happens in Esther chapter seven. God is gonna show up in Esther seven and it's gonna be a joy to the righteous and it's gonna be a terrifying day for Haman. It is gonna be a really epically bad day for Haman. But I want us to notice something before we get into the text and that is the, the pacing of events in Esther. We can sort of read this and it just moves along so quickly, right? But um, we get the impression Esther became queen like three weeks ago. 
right? And then Haman wrote the edict that's gonna condemn and annihilate all the Jews. He wrote that like last week, right? Well, no, we've passed through larger sweeps of time. So just follow with me. Open your Bible, flip back to chapter one, and just see some of the time markers that have been laid down for us by the storyteller. Chapter one, verse three. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff. So there's the third year of the reign of Xerxes. Look at chapter two, verse 16. So we're only one chapter later. She was taken to, that's Esther, was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. So we just fast forwarded four years, one chapter, but we've just fast forwarded four years and a couple verses right after that, Esther gets married and she becomes queen. And then chapter three, verse seven. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' 12th year, the poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman. So we have fast forwarded again another five years beyond the date of Esther's wedding, right? So, so time slows down from that moment on, from the, when it announces it's the first month, the month of Nisan, the 12th year of Xerxes' reign, time slows down and there's a clock on the wall for the rest of Esther. We are not marking time by flipping entire calendar years. We've, we're seeing the ticking of the clock on the wall, right? Everything's slowing down. Chapter three, verse 12. The royal scribes were summoned, now we got days, the 13th day of the first month, that's the 12th year, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. So again, we're no longer jumping four years and then five years um, because the waiting for justice is officially over. And in chapter three, verse seven, when Haman casts the poor, when Haman rolls the dice to find out this dice is gonna decide the terminal day of the Jews, the the purge day, when we annihilate and exterminate the Jews and wipe them off the face of the earth, this dice will decide what day that is and he rolls the dice and it's the 14th day of the month of Adar, so we've got 11 months to live. We've got 11 months, right? The dice has decided. But the, the irony is, from chapter three, verse seven, when Haman casts the lot and rolls the dice, if, it, if, if that happens, let's say, if that happens on Monday, here's the reality. Haman's not gonna make it to the weekend. Haman's not gonna live four more days because we're seeing the calendar pages flip one after another and justice is gonna roll in before the weekend and Haman will be gone. Sometimes God's rescue, I said this last week, but it's equally true this morning, sometimes God's rescue doesn't wait for the return of Jesus. Sometimes it comes on Thursday. And that's what happens in Esther chapter seven. Matter of fact, everything that you read from chapter five, verse one, through chapter eight, verse two, happens in one 24-hour period. So there is a frenetic pace of the arrival of justice in this text. And the reversals and the twist in the plot are just staggering in this 24-hour period. It's concentrated here, right? And, and these reversals, they're preaching something to us. And here's the two things they're preaching to us. God is just and God is able. God is just and God is able two massive theological truths that have spelled consolation and relief for the people of God for well over 2,000 years. So how, do you, how is it demonstrated? It's demonstrated in our passage in sort of three acts. The first act is, we might title it, foiled. Haman's plan 
to execute the Jews is officially foiled. He's outed in this text. So follow along with me. I'm going to read the first five verses. The king and Haman came to the feast with Esther the queen. Once again on the second day while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And the Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil, Haman. So in a way, you think about the story of Esther is a, a coming of age story. When we first meet Esther, she is She's a teenager. She's been swept up into the dragnet of Xerxes' search to, for, to, to update his harem. And in the midst of that harem, he's going to select from that new uh, group of young ladies, he's going to select his queen through this awful uh, audition process that we looked at a few weeks ago, right? We met her, and she was caught between wor two worlds. She was confused. She's the only person in the book of Esther who's got two names. She's got a, a Persian name, and she's got a Hebrew name, Hadassah and Esther, right? And she's kind of living between these two worlds. Mordecai is her adopted father. Both her parents are dead, right? And then and the next thing you know, she's a teenager married to the king of the world, right? So she's just stuck in this vortex. She doesn't know the rules. She doesn't know what it's, what it, what's diplomacy. What does it look like to be the first lady of the vast empire of Persia, right? And, and, and then we come to Esther chapter seven and, and we meet a, an entirely new person. She has come of age. She sounds so different. She has learned wisdom. She knows the ropes. She is, she is godly, gritty, witty, and wise, which is kind of my fourfold description of biblical womanhood. She is godly, gritty, witty, and wise. And you see some of that displayed in the way that she engages these two power, most powerful men in the world. She's invited them over for the feast and tonight's the night. She delayed it last night, timing wasn't right, tonight's the night. And she sees these two men walk in, they walk in together and she sees right through them. Right, she sees through the outward appearances. She knows her husband by this point. They've been, they just celebrated their fifth anniversary. She, she knows him. He's got an ego the size of Texas and he's the kind of guy who's such a narcissist. He, he believes every compliment that's paid to him that person meant it, right? And so he's easy to manipulate. As long as you stroke his ego, you can get him to bend in your direction. And she knows Haman. She sees through Haman. He hobnobs, he works the room, but she sees exactly what he is. He's a flatterer with murderous intentions. She sees right through him. And she comes into chapter seven and she is innocent as a dove and she is shrewd as a serpent, and she better be tonight because it's a pit of vipers in the room tonight. It's just three people, her and the king and his prime minister. Again, you might have noticed right at the beginning of our text that Esther's waiting to host them and, and Haman and the king ride over together, right? So it's almost like she's the third wheel. It's like, wait, they're married, 
the king and the queen should be together and Haman ought to be pulling in later on. But no, that's not the way it is. She prepares the feast and Haman and his bro, the king, they come in together, right? Haman is, is just so we can grasp the, the caution that she has to have. She's got to navigate. She's got to dance around some landmines because these guys have way more history than she does. Haman is, is the king's most trusted advisor. He is the king's fixer. He knows everything about the king. He's not, only, he's not only the fixer and the trusted advisor, he is the biggest campaign donor. We saw this a few chapters ago. He's, the, he's his biggest donor and he's his drinking buddy, right? So the, these guys, they go way back. They've got a lot of history and a lot of uh, rapport. Matter of fact, the only person besides the king who's wearing the king's jewelry is Haman, right? And that's super weird, but I guarantee you nobody said anything about it but he's wearing the signet ring of the king, right? Remember earlier on, like when we were looking at this last week, you know, the king says, if I want to honor somebody, what should I give him? And Haman creates this dream scenario. Oh, what would I, what would I want? He's probably talking about me. I would want to wear the king's clothes. I would want to wear the king's jewelry. I would want to ride on the king's horse, right? This is a sycophant, right? This, is, this, is, this guy's got problems, but that's the nature of this relationship and she's got to navigate this very wisely with tremendous discretion. So what does she do? Well, the first thing she does is she, she is a gracious host. She has reserved the banquet hall for this particular occasion. The place smells awesome as they come in. The food is ready. Uh, they found a, an obliging bottle of wine in the cellar and I'm sure it has been chosen on purpose and the king gets that thing in his hand in verse two and he's got a bottle of wine here, a glass of wine in verse two and what does he say? He's looking at the queen and he's holding his wine and he says, Queen Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. We, we saw this earlier on that a well-oiled king is a generous king. And he is well-oiled and here he comes out with his, with his legendary generosity. What does the queen want? Up to half the kingdom. And she opens her mouth. Right, all this time she has been laying low. Mordecai even instructed her. He, he, he's sort of her parent, right? And, and he said, listen, um, yeah, the, the nail that sticks up too high is the one that gets hammered. You need to lay low. You need to be wise. You need to hide your identity. Tonight's not time for hiding our identity and laying low. And so she opens her mouth. And this time when she opens her mouth, she knows exactly who she is. She is a daughter of Zion and she is the queen of Persia. And she has been raised up for such a time as this. And she speaks into that moment. She speaks truth to power. But the first thing she does actually is this, it's in your notes if you're taking notes. We hear words that secure favor. We hear words that secure favor. Look at verse three. If I have found favor with you, your majesty. Earlier on, every time she speaks to the king, she never uses the personal pronoun, which is protocol. If you're speaking to the king, to the king directly, you say the king. <laughs> Uh, you say his majesty, you say his lordship, you say something, you don't say you, right? He can say you, you can't say you, even if you're the queen. But tonight, she, she senses this is a favorable hour. She's reading the room and she says, if I have found favor, not with the king, if I have found favor, and she looks him in the eye, with you, your majesty. She knows 
how to do this. She is shrewd as a serpent. She is wise. She is discreet. What is she doing? What's the purpose of this? She's pulling the king close. She's using the familiar pronoun. She's looking at him and she is pulling the king close. And not only that, verse three, look at verse three. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, here comes the big ask. Spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. What's she doing? She's identifying with her people. She is tying my outcome to the outcome of my people. It's an identification language kind of thing, right? Remember when, uh, when Jesus, the risen Jesus, confronts Saul of Tarsus who's persecuting the church. And what does the risen Lord Jesus say to Saul of Tarsus? One, he knocks him off his horse, falls on the ground, blinds him, and he says, what are you doing? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He directly identifies with his people. When you persecute my people, you persecute me. Esther's doing the same kind of thing, right? She's foreshadowing forward to Christ. My people's outcome is my outcome. Their welfare is my welfare. Those who curse the people of God curse me. Those who bless the people of God bless me. That goes all the way back to the patriarchal blessing in Genesis chapter 12 and following, right? She is stepping into the role of a mediator, because what does she do? She pulls the king close, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and she pulls her people close. Spare my people. She is at this intermediary, this intercessory role. What a picture this is of Christ, our advocate. Christian, you have an advocate before the Father, an advocate in heaven, we're told, who pleads on your behalf and does so continually. Hebrews says he is a merciful high priest who intercedes for us. You think about what's the upshot of that truth It's taught to us in the New Testament. It's this, Christian, your soul cannot be lost while Christ is interceding for you. Your soul cannot be lost while Christ is interceding for you. And the scripture goes on to say, just so you can finish that logic out, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Which means you're set. If you're in Christ, your assurance is rock solid assurance. The great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane from over a century ago, he said this, I love this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And he said, and distance is no obstacle to God. And he is praying. A beautiful truth peeks through Esther's role of mediation. We hear words that secure favor. Next, we hear words that expose evil. So she says, if I have found favor with the king, spare me and spare my people. Verse four, look at it. For my people and I have been sold. That language seems to be very intentional as well. If she is too on the nose, if she is too confrontational in this moment, she's gonna die and she's not gonna save anybody because the king is very thin-skinned, unfortunately. So it's interesting that she uses the passive verb. My people and I have been sold. And the passive verb is wise because guess who sold them? The king. And guess who was the buyer? Haman. We go back in our text, we can see it. 
earlier on in chapter three, right? Remember what happened. Haman told the king a few chapters ago, he told the king, look, there are some people in the kingdom and I'm gonna have to deal with them. I'm your fixer, so just trust me. Plausible deniability, you don't have to ask me any questions, but I'm just gonna deal with the problem. It's a small group of people. They're not really loyal to the king. It's not in the best interest of the kingdom for us to let these people continue to live. Of course, he's lying. He gives him bad intel. It's all false manufactured stuff, right? But the king trusts him. And and Haman even says, I'm going to deal with this little problem before it becomes a big problem. And one, you're going to lose a lot of your tax base once this thing happens. But I'm just telling you, I'm going to I'm going to refill the coffers of the treasury with my own money, right? So here's the text. It's on the screen in chapter three. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. And now here comes the king's ring. The king removes his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, which is just go ahead and write it into law. Just do what you need to do. Take care of the problem. And so Esther says, my people and I have been sold, she goes on to say, to destruction, death, and annihilation. So she is inching her way out. She's sticking her neck further and further out. This is a bigger risk because now she's directly quoting the edict that Haman wrote and signed with the signet ring of the king. Destruction, death, and annihilation were in the actual copy, in the verbiage. And then she goes on to say, you see there in your text, if we had been sold as slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. So what is going on there? I think what's at play there is is Esther knows her audience and Esther knows her moment. So if you have an audience with Chancellor Hitler in the late 1930s, you're gonna skip over some very big and terrible things to get to genocide. So she doesn't have time to give him a lecture on human rights and all the categories. She does, she's not gonna say, hey, while I got you here, let's talk about the harem. That's, one of your, that's not one of your better ideas. Let's talk about the eunuchs. That also is not one of your better ideas. No, she's gotta jump to genocide, right? There's a death, there is a purge day that's set 11 months from today. Let's go ahead and get to that issue, right? So she's relativizing everything else. She wants him to know, I'm bringing this up, King, because this is life and death. My people and I are under threat of death, and it was signed with your own signet ring. Death, destruction, and annihilation. And that's when the king realizes what's going on, and he is enraged. He is, he, and this is a man with legendary anger management issues, right? And he says, tell me who he is, and tell me where he is. He's got two questions, who and where? is the one who would dare to devise such a scheme. And you, poor Esther, you know, there's almost humor tucked into here where if you're Esther, you're kind of like, well, so there are three of us in the room and uh, I'm talking and you're hearing, there's one other guy right here. You know, it's like, um, you would think, even if you're Esther, you would think like, do you sign like death warrants every day that you wouldn't remember the verbiage of death, annihilation and destruction? Is that like your signet ring? Do you just hand it out to people for that stuff day after day after day? Surely this would jog the king's memory that Haman's the the one who suggested the death order, right? But the, here's the, the good thing about the king's rage, right? He's, he's, um, he's slow on the uptick, but, but he's getting there. And here's the good thing. Here's the hopeful thing if you want justice and you need justice, is the king is angry. And the king's rage 
She's reading the room. The king's rage tells Esther, it's time to name names. Now I know, I can point out your boy right here. I can tell you the name of who's doing it. Now's the opportune moment. Haman's treachery is gonna be exposed. So we move from act one, foiled, to act two, falling. Falling. Look at verse five with me. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. (laughs) Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was, there's that word, falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? And as soon as the statement left the king's mouth, the bag comes over Haman's head and he's brought out, right? She's, she says, so back up. She says, I'll tell you his name. He's the only other guy in the room. It's this evil adversary, Haman. And again, remember the larger context of where we began this entire study. This is a feast every year on the 14th day of the month of Adar, the day we were all supposed to die. We're gonna throw a feast, we're gonna throw a party because his plan was foiled. And and they told this story exactly the way we're reading it. Word for word, this story was told this way. And can you imagine the cheering that would break out every time they read verse six? Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. You, You see how the winds have shifted. The king and Haman came in together and she was third wheeling. Now Haman's third wheeling. The king is standing with his queen and Haman is terrified before both of them. (laughs) King Justice and Lady Wisdom and they are a fearsome combination on this day when justice falls and what do we see? We see the enemy trembling and pleading. We see the enemy trembling and pleading. She says Haman did this and the king is, his head explodes, right? And he needs air. He's gotta go outside for a second and he's gotta take this in and process it, right? And, and this seemingly insignificant act, like so many other things in Esther, this seemingly insignificant act of him leaving the room is providential. Because once the king leaves the room, Haman has three options and none of them are great options. So let's just go through them one at a time. He can walk outside, follow the king and try to talk to him, but the king, right, doesn't look very approachable right now, right? So that's probably not a good idea. He can run off into the night. He can try to escape. That's, that's not gonna bode well either. Or he can stay in the room and plead for his life with the queen. And here's the problem with that one is there was Persian law that said you can't be in the room alone with any member of the king's harem. And if the king is in the room, Even if the king is in the room, you can't be seven steps away, less than seven steps away from any member of the king's harem. Well, there are only two people in the room, and it's Haman and the queen. But he's got to take a risk in some direction. He's going to take the risk of just saying, if anybody can get me mercy, it's you. You're the one who outed me. I'm going to beg this woman right here, this queen. I'm going to beg her for my life. Look at verse 7. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther 
for his life. The irony is so thick, the poetic justice is so thick, right? This whole story hangs on what happened a few years back when Haman is marching through the streets and there's a guy who won't bow before him and that guy happens to be a Jew. And if you don't bow before me, if the Jew doesn't bow before Haman, you're gonna die. And here's Haman bowing before a Jew on the day that he's gonna die. We see the enemy trembling and pleading. We see the enemy falling. The king leaves. Haman stays in the room with the queen. (laughs) Haman, he gets so anxious. He's so nervous. He's he's so uptight, right, that, that he rushes toward the queen to come and plead for his life. And in his haste, he, he, he trips and he's actually, the text is, he's actually falling in the direction of the queen. She's reclining, she's laying down and he is falling in her direction. He is within seven steps and he's falling in the direction of the queen just as the king re-enters the room. Right, so look, look at verse eight. The timing, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Now just remember for a second so we can drink deeply from the satire and from the irony that is in this text is back in chapter six, verse 13. You can just look back if you're right there. Just in chapter six, verse 13, Haman's head is spinning. He just had to march Mordecai through the streets and say he's awesome. So it's, it's the worst day ever. Haman goes back and he tells his friends all the stuff that happened. And his wife, Zeresh, who doesn't have the gift of encouragement, apparently, what does she say? She says in chapter six, verse 13, Haman, you've begun to fall. You know what that language? You have begun to fall. And then she goes on to say, your downfall is certain. Now that language is very, it's the same exact word that's used in the next text. What we didn't know when we heard her say that and we looked at it last week is we didn't know the woman was prophesying. He was literally going to fall. His downfall was literally certain. You know, one ancient Jewish commentator in in something called the Aramaic Targum. So these were commentaries that would have uh, Aramaic translations, but it was also filled with interpretation of the rabbis and so forth. And they would add interpretive flair. They would add storytelling flair in these commentaries. And one ancient Jewish commentary suggests, get this, that Haman fell toward the couch of Esther because he said the angel Gabriel pushed him. Right, so there's almost, you, you picture this sort of golden angelic foot invisibly extended as, and, and catches Haman's ankle and now he's, he's actually falling in the direction of Esther, right? Whether Gabriel was secretly involved or not, may, maybe we'll find out in heaven. But here's the thing that we do know. Haman did fall forward. The king did walk in right at that moment and the king says in verse eight, would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the house? So I leave the room and you attack your accuser who is also my wife, who is also your queen? On what planet does this go over without a problem? Right, in all of the turmoil of the tripping and the falling and the shouting, here comes Harbona. Here comes this big bad dude who was just standing out. He's one of the guards. He's he's a eunuch. He comes inside, right, at that particular moment, and he's going to have 
he's gonna have a word to say, right? The, the king sort of gives that nod. He, he has just said, are you actually violating the queen? And he gives, probably gives, in my imagination, he gives that nod we've all seen in the mobster movies that says, all right, I'm done with him, right? And there's Harbona, <laughs> verse nine. There's a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai. <laughs> Mordecai who gave the report that saved the king. <laughs> and the king says, hang him on it. Now the, the, the expression in the original language depicts not so much uh, someone who's hung by a rope, but someone who is hung up on wood. So think less noose and think more cross. 75 foot tall execution device, get this, designed by Haman, built by Haman, so that the empire would see the world's biggest fool hanging high before nightfall, which is exactly what happened. Foiled, falling, and famous. Famous. Look at verse eight. As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said there's a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. What did Haman want the most in the book of Esther? He wanted the king to make him famous. And in the irony of God, Xerxes says, you want a platform? Is a 75 foot tall wooden platform gonna do the trick? Because that's what ends up happening. He hangs on a 75 foot platform. He is elevated at the end of the day, right? We see the enemy elevated, but he's not elevated as he envisioned. It's the hand of God and the glove of history. It's the God of the twist ending, working invisibly in the world. He's getting Haman to stay up all night to build the device that would spell Haman's own defeat. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. It's the wisdom and satire of God. You think about the cross. Doesn't this remind us of the deeper magic, the deeper wisdom of God? In the irony of God, the very device the enemy would use to convince the world that Jesus was not the Messiah, convinced the world that he was. Isn't that the truth, right? The religious authorities, you ask them the question, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this sham trial? Why are you paying Judas 30 pieces of silver to have this man executed? And their reasoning was, we're gonna hang him high for all the world to see. That nobody's gonna be able to forget what they saw that day, right? And if they still write songs about Jesus of Nazareth, they're gonna write songs about Jesus of Nazareth hanging on a cross, to which God would have replied, that's pretty much what the plan was from the start. That's pretty much what we had in mind. It's as if, you think about it, it's as if Jesus, as it were, chose the hill and said, that's just about right. High enough, chose the wood, right? He knew I'm gonna need some elevation because what did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, if I 
be lifted up, I will draw all nations to myself. I will draw all men unto me. You just gotta lift me up high enough. And he was referring to the crucifixion. You lift me up and I'll draw the world. The church has been singing about that hill and that cross for generations. In the cross of Christ, I glory towering o'er the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. Church has been singing about the cross and Calvary's hill for 2,000 years. And what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he, Jesus, from the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You read Colossians 2.15 and look at the cross and you ask the question, who's really naked? Who's really stripped? Who's really disrobed? Because Jesus, while he's hanging on the cross, is exposing, he's stripping Satan. He is, he is publicly exposing him as a defeated foe. Church, behold the satire of salvation. God found a way to satisfy his just wrath against our sin and pants the devil publicly the same Friday afternoon. The satire of salvation. And then three days later, vindication, right? And isn't that what happens in our text? An execution gives way to an exaltation. Look at chapter eight. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate, right? Haman, uh, rather, Esther gets Haman's estate. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. It's an early echo of Christ coming into his own. Remember prophecies about when Christ, the Messiah, would come into his own. In, in Psalm 2, for example, when, when God says, ask of me and I will give the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And then Mordecai also prefigures Christ because he enters into the presence of the king and he receives the signet ring by which he will rule the earth on the king's behalf. And Mordecai foreshadows Christ who in his resurrection says, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. I've got the signet ring. I have the throne of preeminence over the world. You think about this for your own life as a follower of Jesus. How would your week change? How would your hopes change if you believed God is just and God is able? He is just and he is able. You're, you're, here's your wisest move, my wisest move today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. Let go of all the sins that would so easily entangle you and look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. That's your wisest move. Low before Christ, the king. His scepter holding total sway over the lives of believers, right? That's our wisest move. What's wisdom for us in light of Esther chapter seven? Don't fall into the madness of a world drunk on self-exaltation. That was Haman's folly and it didn't end well. And it won't end well for us. 
What does Esther 7 invite believers to do? It invites believers to expose evil. It invites believers to speak up for the oppressed. It tells believers not to cave in to despair as if God is out of options. So friends, Christian friend this morning, let every moment of your life display two rock solid convictions. God is just and God is able.